Tonight we are starting Revelation Revealed. That is a picture actually of a church that is built over the cave of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. My awesome, amazing daughter Elizabeth found that pic, put that together. And I was thinking about maybe flying over there and broadcasting back here live from the Isle of Patmos. Maybe one day, but that didn't happen for this Wednesday night. But it's going to be a, a great series. We're going to dive into the book of Revelation, which is, as you know, a very popular book, very controversial book. But we're going to dive into it. And so let me say a prayer right here at the beginning before we jump in. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your kindness, for your word, for the book of Revelation. I pray, God, that you would lead us, guide us, reveal things to us in this book of revealings. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. God bless you. All right. Now, to start out and kind of give you the flavor of where we're going. We will not get very far into this first chapter tonight, but I do want to read this first chapter, just like I said, to set the stage, to kind of put the taste in your mouth for where we are about to go. So Revelation chapter 1, I'm in the New King James. It says, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. This is one of the Beatitudes. There are seven Beatitudes, blessings, Throughout the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead. And the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice and spoke with me, the voice that spoke with me. 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it refined as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which are which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now we'll stop there. It obviously goes on, but you can see the dramatic effect. This is some serious stuff that goes down at the get-go of the book of Revelation. This study will be awesome. And it's not just, as you can see already, it's not just antichrist and false prophet kind of stuff. It's not a Kirk Cameron movie or a Nick Cage movie. It's loaded with powerful images beyond the Antichrist and the false prophet. Powerful images of our redemption and our Redeemer. And we're going to go where the text leads us. With our last midweek Bible study being on Genesis, and now this one on Revelation, we're kind of hitting the bookends of the Bible. Talk about the Alpha and the Omega. My grandfather, Papa Hill, he was a preacher forever. He was also the mayor of his town. He was the Andy Griffith of Waldo, Arkansas. And Papa always told me, Son, a good sermon is one that has a good beginning and a good ending and not a whole lot in between. <laughs> well, Genesis is a great beginning. Revelation is a great ending, but there is a whole lot in between. However, in looking at the beginning and the ending, one right after the other, I think we get a great perspective. And I felt led to go to Revelation. I wasn't planning on it originally, but I felt led to go into Revelation after Genesis a few months back. And I think that as we do this, we're going to get a great perspective and a greater appreciation for the stuff that took place in between Genesis and Revelation. Revelation mirrors Genesis, and Genesis mirrors Revelation. In Genesis, man is in a garden, in an unfallen state, and there is no death. At the end of Revelation, man is once again in a garden, in an unfallen state, and again, no death. This was written by the Apostle John. Let's take a minute and look at John the Apostle. It was written by the Apostle John. He's the brother of James. James and John, they were in business with, business with Simon and Andrew. 
These brothers were the sons of Zebedee and Salome. Their mother was a follower and financial supporter of Jesus Christ. She's mentioned at different times in the Gospels. Early on, James and John were known as the sons of thunder. As they followed Jesus, they got mad at some people around Samaria one time. And they were referring back to Elijah in the Old Testament. And they said, Jesus, let's just call down fire from heaven and let's just smoke them. Let's turn them into a greasy spot. Let's just get rid of them. These guys are often portrayed by the painters, as I mentioned this last Sunday, as kind of, you know, mama's boys and pasty and kind of homely looking and weak and mamby-pamby. But really, they were fireballs, they had tempers, and they wanted to burn up the people of Samaria. But Jesus said, you don't understand what spirit you're of. We're not going to do that, boys. They were known as the sons of thunder. But later, John is known as the apostle of love. He and James were probably disciples of John the Baptist early on before Jesus Christ came onto the scene and began his ministry. John was also very well connected. The scripture indicates that he knew the high priest personally and he knew Nicodemus personally. He gives us details about Nicodemus that we don't see anywhere else. He was in Jesus' inner circle. You know, he had the 12 and then he had three. And that inner circle we see gathered around Jesus uniquely at the Mount of Transfiguration, the raising of Jairus' daughter, and at the Olivet Discourse, and finally at Gethsemane. He was also the one told by Jesus to watch after Mary, the mother of Jesus. On the cross, he said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Eventually, he went back to Ephesus where he served as bishop over the churches of Asia Minor. We just looked at some of the names of those churches. Of course, they were all called Life Point. We know that. Most books of the Bible, we refer to them as being inspired. I guess all of the books of the Bible, we refer to them as being inspired. Peter put it like this in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That wording there is they were God-breathed. The Scriptures were God-breathed. And the men wrote as they were moved on by the Spirit. Now, their personalities bled through. We see this like in the Old Testament with Isaiah. Isaiah was brilliant, educated. He was in the king's court on a regular basis. He was dealing and hobnobbing with the people of means and the educated and the elites and the aristocracy of his day. And you see that in his writing. It's very brilliant. It's very masterfully worded. Amos, you've heard me say this before. I refer to him as famous Amos. He was a rancher. He was a cowboy hand. And he wrote, and his personality bleeds through in his writing. We see this throughout all the writings of the Bible. The personality of the, of the author comes through. The Lord still gets his message out exactly the way he wants it. But the personality of that writer is there as well. But the book of Revelation is unlike the rest of the books of the Bible in that the seven letters to the seven churches were in fact dictated directly from Jesus to John. In other words, he's his personal secretary. Write this down. 
Much of the rest of the book was John observing visions and then being told to write down what he saw. So it's different. It's different than most of the books of the Bible in that respect, in that regard. By the way, there are 21 epistles in the Bible. You know what an epistle means. It's a letter. It's not an apostle's wife. You know that joke. It's it's a letter that is written usually to churches, sometimes to individuals. There are 21 epistles in the Bible. There are 13 Pauline epistles written by Paul, eight general epistles, two written by Peter, one written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, another James, not John's brother, and one written by Jude, another half-brother of Jesus. There's one which is anonymous, the book of Hebrews, speculation on who wrote that. And then there's three epistles by John, this guy, same guy. Now, this is interesting. John's first epistle is written to a church, probably the church at Ephesus that he was the overseer of. Are you with me? This is just some opening remarks here. His second epistle is possibly, again, to the church, but it's possible that it's also written to Mary, the mother of Jesus, because it's addressed to the elect lady. And then his third epistle is written to a fellow named Gaius. So there are 21 epistles in the Bible, but really, technically, there's 28 because there's seven epistles, letters written to seven churches in the book of Revelation by Jesus with John writing it down for him. So within the book of Revelation, there are seven epistles spoken by Jesus, written by John. Now, the book of Revelation was written around the end of the century, probably around 96 A.D. John had been banished to the Isle of Patmos, a prison colony, during the persecution of Domitian who reigned from 81 to 96 A.D. Patmos was seven and a half miles wide and six miles long. Very small place. John's brother, James, interestingly and sadly, was the first apostle, the first of the twelve, to be killed. He was murdered with the sword under Herod Agrippa. We saw this in Acts 12 in our study through Acts. Peter was dead at the time John was on Patmos. All of the other 11 were gone. Even Paul had been murdered. John was the last of that courageous group. He was the last of the 12 original apostles to be alive. The book was written somewhere around 96. The best and most recent research sticks with that date. Soon thereafter, John was released. Domitian was assassinated and succeeded by Trajan, or sometimes he's referred to as Nerva. And uh, history says John returned to Ephesus where he continued his work as a bishop until he died of natural causes. By 96 AD, however, this is fascinating to me, monumental, massive, historic changes, shifts had taken place geopolitically, and when it came to the realm of prophecy. For instance, Jerusalem. While John is on the island of Patmos, Jerusalem has already been sacked by Titus, sacked by Rome. It's been leveled. And John had been there 60 years earlier 
when Jesus said of the second temple, he said that there will not be one stone that is left on another. John had been there. Jesus is looking at the temple. He looked at it with him. And and John heard Jesus say that not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. And when Titus attacked Jerusalem, sacked it, and razed the temple, tore it down, those Roman soldiers were paid with the loot from their conquest. And history says they burned that, that temple. They burned it to the ground. They burned it down, and the gold that lined those, those walls melted into the stones, and those soldiers took those stones apart, stone by stone, and chiseled out that gold. Not one stone was left upon another. Jesus said that in Luke 21, and John was there and heard it 60-something years before. And while he's on Patmos, that prophecy has already come to pass. He knows it. Sixty-something years before, John was with Jesus in Jerusalem and heard him say, Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, prophecy was already being fulfilled. He knew it. But as we'll see in our study, there was and there still is much more to come. And by the way, there is so much of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Almost half of the 404 verses in Revelation refer to over 800 passages in the Old Testament. In other words, you cannot grasp the book of Revelation without at least a basic cursory knowledge of the Old Testament. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? No false prophet, no beast yet. We'll get to all that. Now, I feel compelled to make a brief statement. I was also told tonight by, I won't name any names, but they said, listen, please don't scare us with that revelation stuff or we're not coming back. You know, we're going to go where the text leads us. That's exactly where we're going. I won't say the name. That's exactly where we're going. And uh, we'll see where it goes. Shouldn't scare any of us. I do not ascribe to the idea that Revelation was written prior to 70 A.D. This is a, an important note as you get into the book of Revelation. There, there are some who say that Revelation was written earlier. Now, the research, especially the more recent research, totally is against that. But the reason that they'll say that is because they want to say that all of it was fulfilled by the time of the end of the century, by the time 70 A.D. rolled around with the destruction of Jerusalem, that's akin to a, 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 an idea in theology called preterism. I believe this is speaking, as the first verse of Revelation says, of things yet to come. In other words, I believe it was written later, and I believe it's speaking of things yet to come, things still out in front of even us. And don't be confused when it says in verse 1, of things which must shortly take place. I had this thought, this is interesting, at least to me, but the last 2,000 years are known as the last days. 2,000 years, last days. A day with the Lord is as 
you know, a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. In other words, uh, time kind of gets cattywampus, as my grandma used to say, uh, when, when you start putting God into the equation. So uh, when it says that, really, the Greek word also, the Greek word for uh, shortly, when it says that uh, things that are coming shortly must shortly take place, uh, Chuck Missler puts it like this. The Greek there means as they begin to happen, they will happen quickly. In other words, as the dominoes begin to fall, they'll fall quickly. So it's not looking at a space of time per se and from then until uh, the first event takes place. But once the events begin to transpire, it's going to take place quickly. So let's dive in. The word revelation is translated from the Greek word apocalypsis. We get our idea of apocalypse here. It means to unveil, to reveal. The opposite word is apocrypha, meaning to hide, to conceal. Now notice it's not the book of revelations. A lot of people call it the book of revelations. Turn in your Bible with me to the book of revelations. It's the book of revelation. It's the cataloging of a singular revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to spend a little more uh, time tonight in this intro and looking at the first two opening verses, and it's already 7.54, and if we get through two of these verses, we still have 401 or two to go, uh, but I promise you, this is not going to be a 400-part series, you know, this will not be a 400-part series, we will move quickly, somebody say amen. Verses 1 and 2, let's dive in. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things of which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Notice, the revelation was given to Jesus. By whom? It says it right there. By God. Uh, Didn't see that coming. So let's take a little slight detour right here at the very beginning. John was an apostle, one of the originals. He wrote four other books in the Bible, three of them, letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. The other one was the Gospel of John, detailing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are other Gospels. They're called the synoptic gospels, meaning they are in sync with one another. They come from the same general point of view. They're similar. But John's gospel is out there, y'all, absolutely, totally distinct, different. And in the prologue of the gospel of John, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, John writes, listen to this, in the beginning was the Word. It's the same writer that wrote the book of Revelation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then in verse 14, he brings it home. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So right here at the get-go, 
we run headlong into the depth of the understanding in which John easily flows. He has such a grasp of the incarnation. We read over those words very quickly. They've almost become an incantation to us. We've heard them so many times before. But this idea of the dual nature of Christ, Jesus being simultaneously fully, truly God and fully, truly man, to contemplate that at any depth is mind-boggling. Even the great apostle Paul called the incarnation a great mystery. But John was familiar with this territory, man. I'm telling you, he had walked in this. He had walked with them. He had talked with them. He's 90-plus years old at the time of this writing. He understands a thing or two. And I don't want to belabor the point, but knowing John's perspective at the beginning will help us as we process and trek through this book. So here we have the eternal spirit of the living God that overshadowed Mary, a.k.a. the Father, revealing this message, the revelation contained in the book of Revelation to the Son of Man, the man Christ Jesus. It says, the revelation given to him, capital, to him. Now, Jesus functioned this way in his earthly ministry. Look at this, John 12, 44 through 49. Oh, it's quiet in here. Oh, yeah, we're looking for the Antichrist and the false prophet. We'll get there. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This is the writing of John. He's got an understanding. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the dark, into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. What's he saying? I only say what my father says. John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do myself of myself. I can of myself do what? Nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but the will of the father who sent me. Jesus Christ functioned as a man with a will that was submitted to the word of the covenant to his heavenly father. He functioned as a man in covenant anointed by the spirit of God. And how did he do all that? He humbled himself. Philippians 2. We see this powerfully and poignantly. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made 
himself of no reputation. The incarnate one made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Folks, he humiliated himself. He condescended. He came down to our level so we could get up to his. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Everybody say obedient. To the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verses 9 through 11, we see the exaltation because of this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it was all because he humbled himself. He subjected his human will to the will and word of the Father. Remember his prayer in Gethsemane, Luke 22. Sweating, great drops of blood. Man, his hour had come. It was upon him. The redemption of man. All the prophecies of the Old Testament weighing on him. And he says, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So back to Revelation. He gets this revelation, Jesus does. That's mind-boggling in and of itself to me. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ in that it belongs to him. I've always seen it as the revelation of Jesus Christ, like revealing Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' personal revelation. And he's going to give it. That's the reason he got it, to give it. It says so in verse 1, so Jesus could show his servants this same revelation. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? So who are his servants? Who then are his servants? My natural reaction is me. I'm his servant. He came to show me. But how can we claim with any certainty that we are his servants? I mean, how can I know without a doubt that I am the servant referred to here? I mean, if I were to include you in it, how can we know with any certainty that we are the servants here? I tend to think I am. I'm not so sure about you. You know, how do we know who the servants are Here, the answer is we don't know, we can't know that we are the servants referred to, but we do know some of his servants, those to whom we can say without a doubt, with absolute certainty and conviction, they are his servants. One of them is John, because first of all, right there in the verse, it says his servant John. Are you with me? Now, there were others that we could say are his servants or were his servants, the servants of Jesus. Who would those be? The other 11, the apostles. This seems like a technicality, and I'm sorry if I'm spending too much time on it. Sometimes I get into the details heavily, but I just kind of want to weigh this out because this makes the rest of it make more sense. Only one of the 12 is still alive. As I mentioned, John. Eleven of the twelve were dead. You know, Judas hung himself, replaced by Matthias, who was killed. John is called his servant, 
But the verse says it's to be revealed to his servants. It's in the plural. So we have to conclude the revelation was for John and for everyone who would stand in agreement with John and the other 11. In other words, being unified around the 12. And how do you do that? The 12 are dead. I can't go meet up with them and say, let's have coffee together. Let's powwow together. Let's start a church together. But I can take their teachings and I can make those teachings my own. I can apply their teachings to my life, submit to the teachings of Jesus that they taught, as we see in their writings and in the book of Acts, to the gospel message and to the response to the gospel message that they preached. And in so doing, I can become one with the apostles, unified around their doctrine. Are you with me? We've looked at this many times. We, we looked at John chapter 17, preaching the same message, the same response. Very important. We've studied all of that in great detail. So, we just looked at the book of Genesis. Here we are in Revelation. The entire book is a Jesus book. The telling of the story of the Lamb, the Redeemer, our Heavenly Father. The sacrifice He's made for us. Remember, we've looked at that. The first two chapters of the Bible tell the story of man before the fall. It only lasts for a tiny bit tells the story of man before the fall. And then the last two chapters of the Bible tell the story of man after the fall. But the uh, 1,185 chapters in between are telling the story of the solution. Jesus is the solution. This entire Bible is a revelation of Jesus. John 5, 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, they are they which testify of me. But the book of Revelation stands apart. It is the revelation Within the entirety of the revelation, it's the conclusion, the culmination, the climax, the wrap-up. Now, John is special, y'all. I'm just telling you. This cat, I always say he's a Jedi in the force, but that might be disrespectful. Like, he's been around the block. History tradition says, and we're not sure if it's true, that He was boiled alive. They tried to kill him that way. He survived. He's banished to the Isle of Patmos. He survives. He goes back to Ephesus. There's other traditions that say he walked into the temple of Artemis or Diana, the one that was still standing back when Paul was around. And he walked in and prayed about 25, 30 words. And there was an earthquake that shook. And that cult of Diana disappeared from the scene of the earth. After that, he was a powerful, powerful man by the time we get to the book of Revelation. Now, in the Old Testament, who's called the friend of God? Well, you guys were like full of questions last week. Now I'm asking you a question. You're all silent, you know. Abraham, friend of God. Abraham was called the friend of God. We see this in 2 Chronicles 20, Isaiah 41. Some New Testament references. He's a friend of God. Now, that's more than a buddy. We've talked about that. It's a covenant partner. We saw that in Genesis, Genesis 18. When God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God said, shall I hide what I'm about to do from my friend? Remember that story? And the implication was no. And he tells him, I'm about to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. He revealed this future and this future judgment to his friend. Now in the New Testament, in John chapter 15, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to John and the others, 
No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Like Abraham knew things because he was the friend of God, John was his friend. And not only had he learned things by the time John 15 rolled around, but by the time the book of Revelation rolled around, he said, I got some more things I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you the future, son. I'm going to show you some future judgment. I'm going to show you the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and the coming kingdom and of his kingdom there shall be no end. God wanted to reveal those same things, uh, wanted to reveal those things to John, and he wants to reveal those same things to us. Amen? God does not want us to be in the dark. As a matter of fact, one of the most unique things about the book of Revelation is found in verse 3. Listen, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. No other book in your Bible makes this claim. There's no other book that says, read me, I'm a special book in the Bible. But Revelation makes that claim. Of course, we're blessed by the Word. When we feed on the Word, the Word makes us strong, the milk, the meat of the Word. But this says there is a special blessing, an empowerment that comes only from getting into this book and this book getting into us. Now, let me ask you, how much time have you spent in the book of Revelation? Most pastors, most preachers don't want to go into the book of Revelation. i got to be honest with you. I've been one of them. And you know why? One simple reason. Julie 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. I've got a copy of it in my office. Does anybody remember that little book? Newspaper ads taken out back in the day when the children, there was this thing called newspapers. There were papers that you opened up. They were amazing back in the day. Big old newspaper ads. Jesus is returning in 1988, and there's been many others that have come along. Not too long ago, Harold Campy came out. Jesus is coming back, gave a date. He's coming back. He didn't come back then. Many have said that. Many have done that. And, and they did it by, by, by diving into Scripture and dissecting it and getting really deep into it and predicting things and coming up with dates. And, and they've left embarrassed, and their ministries have suffered because of it. And I'm just like, I don't want to do that. I want to just talk about Jesus. And I just want to talk. I know he's coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. I don't want to die. I don't want to figure out all that prophet beast stuff. You know what I mean? Like, we'll just avoid that subject. But there's a blessing that comes from diving into the book of Revelation that's different from any other book in your Bible. And so why hold that back, huh? Don't you want to be blessed from the Lord? There's a Blessed is everyone who reads and hears the words of this prophecy. So we're going to dive into the book of Revelation, y'all. We're going we're gonna to go, I, I mean, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. I mean, if you're going to jump off the high dive, you might as well do a swan dive, you know, in the pike position. Do a few twists and turns and, and try to get in there with a bloop, you know. Like, you might as well go for a 10. And so here we go. We're going to dive into the book of Revelation and see where it goes. We're going to spend some time there because God wants 
to bless this church in unprecedented ways. And the last thing I want to say to prep this is that the day is at hand, y'all. Jesus is coming soon. If he was coming soon then, how much more is he coming soon now? I'm telling you, I believe we are on the precipice. I know generations have said that for years and years and years. But I'm just telling you, more than ever before, we stand on the precipice. These words have not yet come to pass. I'm not a preterist. I don't think it all took place. And sadly, most of the modern denominations, the mainstream denominations, look at the book of Revelation as having already been fulfilled. And they get it from Roman Catholicism. Catholic theology will take the approach that it's already been fulfilled. And the mainstream, the mainline denominations have fallen in suit, which means they just don't spend time there. But I believe these prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. And when they start being fulfilled, you better lift up your heads because they're going to take place very quickly. And Jesus will soon split the sky. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the King of glory, the last Adam, the, the Redeemer of all mankind. And your redemption will become a reality, spirit, soul, and body. Can you stand with me right now? And all that we have waited for and all that we have longed for, this time-space continuum, everything will shift and change. He's the one who was and is and is to come. We'll see this throughout the Scripture was and is and is to come. He's outside of time. He's worked in the past. He's working now, and he'll be there in the future. And every word that he's promised will come to pass. Like Glenn preached the Sunday night, not one word will fall. He will not get to the end of it all and say, oh, man, Revelation 17, 6 didn't come to pass. Somehow that didn't happen. We didn't get that one done. No. When it's all said and done, it will be Everything was completed. Every word was fulfilled. You know why? Because he's God. Amen. And having said that, built a little faith, let me just say this. What are you facing that God can't handle? Nothing. I said it last week. Cancer is not too big of a word for God. Bankruptcy is not too big of a word for God. Divorce is not too big of a word for God. Your worst sin is not too big of a problem for God. He's paid the price. Check this out, and I'm I'm closing. When he created everything, he just spoke it into existence. He could build another universe with a proverbial snap of his fingers, a wave of his hand, just a word, let it be. In my estimation, that's cheap. That's easy. That's creation. This is the story of redemption. That's different. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Redemption, very expensive. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He will restore. He will renew everything at great cost. That's why when it is all said and done, and we'll get glimpses of it, I'm telling you, we're going to see it. That's why when the lamb walks into the room, John, the other 11, they take their rewards, their crowns. Say, no, not me. He is worthy. They, they fall on their faces. Worthy. Israel's elders, Adam, Noah, Seth, Lamech, if he's there, Malachi, all of them, they bow their knees. They bow their faces because re- creation was one thing. Redemption, totally different. Very expensive. High price was paid. Right in the middle of it is the church. Kings and priests unto our God. We'll get into that. Amen. Can you close your eyes with me right now, Father? You have known me. Thank you so much for this book of Revelation. You kind of teed it up, set the stage. As we dive into it, I pray, God, that you would show us your King of kings and Lord of lords. You hold the world in your hands. You are in control. Who can resist? Who can kick against you and win? Nobody. Father, we want to bow the knee. Father, we just want to bow the knee. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the 